Thank you for downloading the Beacon Church podcast. We hope that you enjoy today's message and that you find that God speaks to you through it. Okay, he is. And so there are many times when I tell him. But yes, I mean, that, that news, I wonder if, um, I, I mean, possibly not quite the same as things like 9-11, or, or if you go really way back to when President Kennedy was shot in the 60s. But people say, oh, I always remember where I was when I heard that news. And I think for many of the people in France, and actually even for us, we may well say, oh, I remember. I remember where I was. It, my 11-year-old niece sent me a text message to say, Notre Dame Cathedral on fire on my phone. Oh, my goodness. And uh, it's one of those world-changing events this current century. And lots of people over the last uh, few days have been linking it and talking about the last major fire in a UK cathedral. Does anybody know where that was and when that was? York, yes. And poor Emma and I are probably of the age... When we remember it, just about, because many of you would not born, you were but a glint in your father's eye, because uh, York Minster burnt uh, in 1984, and that was a major news story, and there have been links with the fire at York Minster with what's happened at Notre Dame. In fact, they've been talking about um, sending people over to Notre Dame who helped to renovate York Minster when it caught fire, and there's pictures of it there back in 1984. It looks very similar, doesn't it, to what we, the pictures that we've seen this week. 1984 was an interesting year in terms of the church, because in March of 1984, a groundbreaking BBC series called Sea of Faith was broadcast over six weeks. It was led by a theologian, the dean of one of uh, Cambridge universities, one of the Cambridge universities, and an Anglican priest called Don Cupid. And over those six weeks, Don Cupid and the people he drew in basically systematically questioned every truth of the Christian faith. In fact, at the end of that series, there were many debates across the country, and you can imagine there was There were people like us who were evangelical Christians who believe what the Bible says, who were saying one thing, and there would be many other people on the Christian spectrum who were saying another thing. And at the end of this six-week series, this sea of faith was set up, actually, as a group that still exists. This is what it says on its website. Sea of faith, exploring and affirming religious faith as a human creation for this life. And basically that's what that series was expounding, that actually the Christian faith was something that human beings had created, rather like it creates any faith or religion. So it wasn't just saying it about Christianity, it was saying but actually we create it as a way of us feeling better, as a way of us trying to explain back in the day when there wasn't science, to try and explain how the world came to be and what was behind it. We didn't have science in those days, and so we needed something to explain it. And so human beings created faith. And along that line, at some point, just over 2,000 years ago, we created the faith 
of Christianity. It was built on Judaism, sure, but this was a new faith that human beings created. And in fact, the interesting thing was that this series and this organisation that still exists, Sea of Faith, doesn't necessarily see Christianity as being a bad thing. It sees it as being quite a good thing. But it is something, they say, that we've created to feel better about the difficult things in life. Something we've created to feel better about death and what happens at the end. And so this happened early on in 1984, and there was much discussion. And then in early July 1984, at York Minster, a new bishop was ordained. His name was David Jenkins. David Jenkins was ordained as the Bishop of Durham, which is the fourth most senior clerical position in the Church of England. And David Jenkins had gone on record in television interviews as saying that he doubted the validity of the virgin birth and the resurrection. And for the first time, the Church of England was openly ordaining a bishop, a senior bishop, who didn't believe in the resurrection or in the virgin birth to a highly senior position. He was ordained in York Minster in July 1984. Three days later, York Minster caught fire. They're still not sure 100% of how it happened, They are 80% sure it was a freak lightning bolt. It hit the roof of York Minster. It bypassed all of the lightning rods that are on the top of the Minster for the very purpose of catching a lightning strike and safely bringing it down to the ground. It bypassed all of those. It hit the roof. For some reason, the smoke alarms in the roof cavity in York Minster did not go off, and the cathedral caught light. Now, you can imagine that many people said this is an indication of God's judgment on this, on what's happened in here, this place three days ago. Now, many other people would just say, well, it was just a coincidence, and indeed, the Church of England itself said that. If you uh, have something that happens in your house, like a lightning bolt or a flood, sometimes insurers won't insure you because they call it an act of God. And they say, well, we can't insure you against an act of God. And the Church of England called it an act of God in that sense, but it wouldn't agree that maybe this was an act of God in another sense. Now, I'm not saying that it was or it wasn't. I'm not a prophet I guess, as Christians, sometimes we look at coincidences and think, hmm, that's interesting. Is there such a thing as coincidence when you believe in the sovereign God? Was that a coincidence three days later in the very cathedral where David Jenkins was ordained? I don't know whether it was a coincidence. I don't know if it was God saying something. But certainly, many people in the church believe that it was. In 2002, there was a major survey of Church of England clergy. Now, let me just say at this point, this is not a bash at the Church of England. (laughs) I love the Church of England. I am a paid-up friend of St Paul's Cathedral. 
okay? I love the Church of England, and we have many brothers and sisters in the Church of England who love God and believe the Bible. HTB, where the Alpha Course comes from, is unashamedly a Church of England. We love the Church of England, and we love our brothers and sisters in the Church of England. And I'm sure the survey that I'm about to quote to you could have been done in any denomination of the Christian Church. But this one happened to be done in the Church of England. It was a major survey in 2002 of Church of England clergy. There are about 10,000 clergymen in the Church of England, or clergywomen now as well, clergy, let's call it clergy. And just under 2,000 of them were interviewed. So it was a fairly substantial survey. This survey in 2002 found that one-third of Church of England clergy didn't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus. A half were not convinced of the virgin birth. And a half of Church of England clergy believed that salvation is only found in Jesus. The other half believed that there are many routes to God. A survey of the population in the UK in 2017, which was reported by the BBC, and we have to be careful with surveys and statistics, this wasn't a massive survey, but it was nevertheless a survey of around about 2,000 people in the UK. And it found that of those people in the survey who identified themselves as active Christians... In other words, Christians that would go to church at least twice a month, active Christians. Out of those active Christians, around about 58% believed in the biblical version of the resurrection. Now, interestingly enough, that survey also included people in who said they were Christians, but then when the surveyors asked more questions, they never went to church. And, and I'm not saying you can't be a Christian and never go to church, but what I am saying is that active Christianity probably does involve you being part of a body, doesn't it? The body of Christ. The Bible tells us to be together and involved, and if you're not doing that, then there's something that would be slightly questioning about, about whether you're following faith. But interestingly, if you took all the people who said, I'm a Christian... A quarter of them felt that the resurrection wasn't true. So actually, when you ask people who don't actively come to church, it seems like more of them think the resurrection is true than people who go to church every week do. It's interesting, isn't it? The world that we live and operate in largely discounts the resurrection as a physical event. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, well, Phil, you know, I come here every week. I am a, a Bible-believing, what we would call evangelical Christian. You don't need to persuade me of the resurrection and of the fact of the resurrection. And I would say, no, of course I don't need to persuade you. Here's the reason why. And I, I've encountered this often on Alpha courses. I've been involved in Alpha courses uh, before I came to Beacon for many years. And we've just done one. Uh, we finished a couple of weeks, like a few weeks ago here at Beacon. And uh, I love doing Alpha courses. And here's one of the things that you discover when you do an Alpha course. An Alpha course is where people come to explore Christianity and to find out whether it's true or not. And they can ask any question that they like. No, doesn't matter how hostile it is. And believe me, I've had some hostile questions asked to me 
when I've been on an Alpha course. What about suffering? How do you explain a loving God when there's so much suffering in the world? And I've had all sorts of people who've said very strange things about who they think Jesus was. Well, he was an alien. I think he was an alien. And on the Alpha course, you're, you're taught when you're sitting at the table, if you're the helper or you're the group leader, you, you never say, don't be ridiculous. You say, mm, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Okay? We do a lot of that on an Alpha course. People often start an Alpha course like that if they're not Christians, if they're antagonistic towards the faith, if they're just not sure. They'll start like that. They'll go through the weeks and often God will do something in them. They'll discover the love of the church within the group they're sitting at because there are Christians in this group as well as non-Christians and suddenly they're finding, oh, actually this person's really interested in what happened to me last week. And uh, So over the 10 weeks of an Alpha course, people don't always, but people will often discover Jesus. What happens then is that by the end, the questions are no longer quite so important. The difficult questions about suffering, the difficult questions about who was Jesus, the difficult questions about miracles and do they really happen, the difficult questions about why don't people get healed when we pray, some do and some don't, those difficult questions are still there at the end of the Alpha course, but suddenly they take less of an importance. Why? Because that person who's maybe gone through an Alpha course has suddenly discovered Jesus and the love of God the Father for themselves, and suddenly they just don't need to ask those questions with such weight because they trust him, because they've met him. And for many of us who sit in that room, in this room, sorry, that's why we don't necessarily need the resurrection to be proved to us this morning. Because it's almost like, yes, but I've, I've met him. I feel you don't, you're, you're preaching to the converted. You don't need to persuade me about the resurrection. But there might be other people who are sitting in the room who are less sure about that. And actually, not even, even if there aren't, it's quite important for us to know that it is reasonable to believe in the resurrection. Because if it isn't, then actually what you could be believing in could be the same as the woman who, who uh, was a grandmother of um, one of the children that I taught a number of years ago. I won't go into the whole story because the lovely end of the story is that this child who grew up in a, an unchurched, um, non-Christian family is now, and is now a Christian. But this grandmother, her own mother was still alive, very elderly, and she died while I was teaching her, this, uh, her grandchild. And I remember her saying, yeah, we've, we, we've said to Lucy that great-grandma is another star in the sky. And she's looking down on us. And so when you look up in the sky, there's another star in the sky. Well, sounds nice, doesn't it? Yeah, I can imagine that'd be quite a nice thing to say to a child who's grappling with losing someone. But actually, is it true? Well, scientists would tell us that stars are great big, enormous balls of burning gas. Now, many million light years away from us. So did great-grandmother suddenly become a great big ball of burning gas 500 million light years away? Well, possibly not. But people will believe in all sorts of things. And that's why sometimes it's important for us as Christians to know that actually there is a reasonableness about our faith. 
Because people out there believe in all sorts of things. So what marks out Christianity? What marks out this as being any different? Well, actually, the New Testament writers felt exactly the same. They felt exactly the same. They felt that actually these new churches that they were beginning to plant and people that they were telling about what they'd seen and heard needed to know that this was fact. So here's what Peter says. For we did not, he writes a letter, Peter writes a letter to one of his church, the churches that he set up and he writes this, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We were eyewitnesses. This wasn't a myth, folks, he's saying. Luke, at the beginning of his gospel, he explains why he's written it. So Luke, we don't think Luke met Jesus. Luke was a doctor. He was a Gentile doctor. He wasn't a Jew. He was a doctor, a medical doctor. And this is what he says at the beginning of the gospel that he wrote about Jesus' life in the New Testament. He says this, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the Lord. And with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. John, who was Jesus' best friend, writes a letter to one of the churches and he writes this, that which was from the beginning, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. This life appeared, we've seen it and we testify to it. All of the apostles who wrote the New Testament were really clear that they wanted people to understand, look, we've not been in heebie-jeebie land. This is real. We've seen it with our own eyes. Skepticism, though, about the resurrection has always, always existed. Uh, we went to Athens um, a couple of weeks ago. Emma, Steve... Pauline, Owen and I. And we were there for a conference, but on the very last day, we were um, allowed to go and visit Athens itself. We were in a little way away in a place called Marathon. Well, 26 miles away, actually, wasn't it? <laughs> Hence the name Marathon. And uh, we went to Athens, and uh, one of the things we were able to do before we caught our flights back to the UK was we were able to go and visit the Acropolis. We were able to go and see this big temple called the Parthenon, right at the top of what's called the Acropolis, which is a great big mount, a great big hill in, in Athens. If you look down from the Acropolis, if you look down from the, what's called the Parthenon, which is the big thing at the top there that looks a bit like a temple, you'll see that white sort of hill in front. Um, that bit, okay? That bit there. That bit there is called Ares Rock, and Air, Ares, was the Greek god of war. But when the Romans came, they said, well, no, we think our god of war is better, so we're now going to call it Mars Hill, because Mars was the Roman god of war. So Ares Rock became Mars Hill. 
And Mars Hill was a place 2,000 years ago where Greek philosophers who were interested in just talking about stuff would go and, they'd go and debate on that hill. And it's there that Paul stood. In fact, we, uh, Steve, Emma and I didn't get to go and actually stand on that rock. We saw it, but we, we, we were too rushing to get to the coach. Um, so we didn't get to stand on it. But Owen and Pauline actually went and stood on Mars Hill, where Paul stood. And we read it in Acts 17 that he debated with these Greek philosophers. This is what it says. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered... And others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. And at that, Paul left the council and some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. So some sneered. Just just to prove we were actually there, if you go to the next one. So we were there. Now, I'm sorry, that is Steve and Emma on the corner there. You can see that I took prominent position in that photo. Um, So I'm not very good at selfies. But just so, so you know, I did take some nice pictures of them. There is another. There we go. That was when we, we climbed the mountain, didn't we? Which was very special. And so that, there's a nice one. of. Okay. But, but just to prove, we, and that's Steve and Emma in the corner there. We were there. Okay. We were there. There has always been scepticism outside of the church about the resurrection. And that's fair enough. But actually, there's also been scepticism inside the church from the earliest days. So after Paul had been to Athens and had debated with these Greek philosophers, he then travels about 50 miles. If you put up a map, the map, Owen, on the next one, he's not concentrating, is he? He's not very good at this. Next slide, please. Thank you. The distance from Athens to Corinth is around about 50 miles. These days, you can do it in just over an hour in a car. Probably in Paul's day, they're not quite sure how long it took him. Probably no more than a couple of days unless he stopped off. I mean, Paul did tend to stop off places, didn't he? But he travelled as soon as he'd finished talking with the philosophers in Athens. He travelled to Corinth. And he stayed in Corinth for about a year and a half. And he established a number of churches in Corinth. And then he goes back goes away again, and within three or four years, he's having to write to the church in Corinth because they're getting themselves in a right old pickle about all sorts of things. And one of the things that they're getting themselves in a pickle about is that they are beginning to listen to people inside the church who are saying there's no such thing as the resurrection. And Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, has to write to them and actually say, yes, there is And this is why it's really important. And he lists a number of things about why the resurrection is important. So what's at stake? Because perhaps perhaps it doesn't really matter whether Jesus physically rose from the dead or not. I mean, he was quite a good teacher, wasn't he? Maybe we can just look at what he wrote and what he said. And, you know, maybe it's not... That's not important that he physically rose from the dead. We don't need to make such a big thing about the resurrection. And that's exactly what the church in Corinth was saying. And Paul says, no. So why does he say it's important? Okay, a few points are going to come up. Yeah. He's still in training. So here's the first thing Paul says when he writes this letter to the church in Corinth. 
If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That word futile is an interesting word. It, it means leaky. Futile means it leaks. It doesn't hold water. It pours away. Paul says your faith is futile if Christ was not raised. Why? Well, because if Christ was not raised, if he stayed dead, then actually that means that God did not vindicate what he'd done. God did not say, yes, I approve of it. Yes, you were perfect. Yes, you have borne the sins of the whole world and now they can be reconciled to me. Yes, you have raised from the dead. And Paul's saying, if Christ wasn't raised, then actually your faith is like a leaky bucket. It doesn't hold water. And then he says this, If Christ is not raised, you are still in your sins. You're still in your sins. That very thing that Jesus said he'd come to do, well, if he's not raised from the dead, because he said he was going to rise in three days, there's a passage in the New Testament where the, the, the Pharisees are talking about the temple and Jesus says to them, demolish this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And of course, he's not talking about the temple. The temple was the place where you went to find the presence of God. He's talking about this temple. This is the ultimate temple, his body. If you you demolish this temple, he's talking about his death. If you do that, I tell you what, I'll raise it in three days. Now, actually, do you know what? If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then what Paul is sort of saying is you might as well forget all the stuff he claimed to be. You might as well forget that he claimed to deliver you from your sins. You're still in them. Because if he wasn't raised from the dead, well, he was either deluded or he was a liar. C.S. Lewis is a guy who I love reading, and he wrote the stories of Narnia, you know, the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And he says, basically, he says, if Jesus wasn't who he said he was, if he wasn't raised from the dead, well, he might as well have just gone around saying he was a poached egg. Do we believe people who say, I'm a poached egg? No, we don't. And C.S. Lewis says, look, if this didn't happen, then we might as well just think that Jesus was one of those poor people who who suffered from real mental illness and mental delusions. He was either that, or C.S. Lewis says, he was worse. He was a trickster. He just wanted to trick and deceive people. He was either deluded himself, bless him, or... C.S. Lewis says he was like the devil incarnate. He was, he was going about trying to deceive. And Paul is saying the same here. Paul is saying, look, if he wasn't physically raised from the dead, well, his mission to conquer sin wasn't successful. You're still in your sins. You've still got the same problem. Then he says this, if Christ is not raised, those also who've fallen asleep in Christ, so in other words, those who've died since Jesus has come, because Paul wrote this about 20 years afterwards, they've perished. They've perished. There's no hope for eternal life for anyone, for our loved ones, for ourselves. He says this, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why did he say that? Well, because at this point, the disciples and Christians were beginning to be persecuted 
We know that at least 10 out of the 12 apostles, we're fairly sure from early church history, they were martyred for their faith. He says, look, if this isn't true, if it's all a lie, then actually we need to be pitied as Christians because we've just been deceived and we're deceiving ourselves. And finally, he says this, if the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. So let's just forget it all and let's just become people who just go out and seek pleasure for the 70 odd years that we're here. Let's spend as much money as we can, have as much pleasure as we can because then it's all over. Might as well do that. Fortunately, Paul doesn't finish there. He then says this, and this is a very strong term he uses here. But, in fact, now we use that term, in fact, it's a bit light. We say, oh, well, you know, I was going to go to work t- tomorrow, but in fact, I've decided to have a sickie. <laughs> but, but when Paul uses this term, in fact, it's a bit more like we would say these days, da-da-da-da-da-da, fact. He's saying, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. First fruits are what farmers used to do when a crop had reached its um, ready for harvest and they'd take a bit of it to check the quality. Oh my goodness, this is fantastic. This is going to be a great crop. I'm going to make a mint out of this. The first fruits is the bit you take to try and see what the quality is like. And Paul is saying, Jesus was like that first fruits of our own resurrection. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam, we're all in Adam, we're Adam's sons and daughters, all die. But so in Christ shall all be made alive. I don't know if you've heard of a guy, some of you have heard of a guy called Lee Strobel. And Lee Strobel was uh, a journalist. He was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And Lee Strobel's wife, interesting, it was in the 80s, so it was about the same time as all this stuff's going on over here, but he was uh, uh, an American journalist. And Lee Strobel was a confirmed atheist He always had been. And in fact, when you listen to what he says, when he talks, he says that he was like the person who had the philosophy that Paul just talked about. Let's eat, drink and be merry now because tomorrow we die. And that's how he lived his life. Lee Strobel's wife, Leslie, became a Christian in the early 1980s and Lee Strobel was devastated by this. And so he decided that he would disprove, he was a journalist, and so he was used to evidence. In fact, he said that in the newsroom at the the Chicago Tribune, they had a poster up which said, if your mother tells you she loves you, check it out. In other words, there needs to be evidence for everything. And so Lee Strobel decided that the best way that he could persuade his wife that what she had entered into was a load of old baloney is that what he would do is he would disprove the resurrection. And so he decided he would do that. He expected it would take him about a weekend to do it. Okay? So as a journalist, he goes through the process of collecting evidence and it takes him a little bit longer 
than a long weekend to do it. In fact, it takes him a year and nine months to collect evidence. And uh, he's written a book off the back of it, The Case for Christ, and in, 19, in 2017, there was a, a motion picture, picture that was, I don't know, some people seen it? Yes, yeah, good film, isn't it? I've, I've heard it's a good film. Um, you know, it's got decent actors in it. When you see quite a lot of films, uh, Christian films, they're not, anyway, we won't go there. But this is a decent, I think this is a decent one. Yeah, it's got Faye Dunaway in it. She's quite a well-known actress. Anyway, he made a, so they made a film of it. He's written a book about it, about this quest he went on to disprove the resurrection. And of course, you can guess what the outcome is. After one year and nine months, he finds that he can't disprove the resurrection. He can't disprove it. This hard-nosed journalist, he was an award-winning journalist, legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, and he just can't disprove it. And when he talks about this, he talks about four things that in the end persuaded him that there must be something in this story of the physical resurrection of Jesus. Four E's. Here we go. We're going to go through them quickly and then we're nearly done. The first E, execution. Jesus' execution. As Lee Strobel looked into this, he discovered that there is no denial from any historian worth their salt, Christians, historians, and unbelieving historians, that Jesus was a real person and that he was executed. Why can we know that? Not just because of the New Testament itself, but there are five independent sources written around the same time that refer to the execution of Jesus, of this man called Jesus Christ. So now there would be, I mean, there might be some, forgive my language, there might be some crackpot historians out there, but if you ask any um, sensible historian who looks into this time, in this time frame, Christian or not Christian, you'd expect the Christian ones to believe it, wouldn't you? But the non-Christian ones too will say, there is fairly incontrovertible evidence that Jesus Christ was executed. So the first one is execution. He could not disprove the execution of Jesus. The second one is something he calls early creed. Now a creed is like a statement of what you believe. Okay? It's a statement of what you believe. So I, I used to be a teacher... I used to teach really young children, and I could tell you that one of the things in my creed would be young children learn most through play. That would be part of my creed. And I could give you some evidence to back that up if you wanted me to. I could. Okay? That's part of my creed as an early years teacher. There was an early creed of the Christian faith. In fact, probably within six years of Jesus' death, there was a formal statement of belief which contained the essence of Christianity. Now, the thing is that one of the main criticisms of the resurrection, one of what people will say is, well, actually, it never really happened. Actually, the people who wrote about it at that time, their words were twisted a little bit later, and it just became a legend. It became a legend. But the thing about a legend is that legends only occur three or four generations after something's happened. Because there are still the people around that were alive at the time. And if you start to say something that's not true, 
while they're still around, well, then they'll say, no, 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 that's not true. No, he didn't raise from the dead. No, we buried him and he stayed there. No, no, no. No, no, that didn't happen. So if the legend, if there had been a legend, it would have developed three or four generations afterwards. But we have a creed, we have written evidence that the church had started to write down what it believed within about six years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And there would have been any moment there would have been a chance for somebody to say, no, 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 I was there, I saw it, it didn't happen that way. Nice idea that he raised from the dead, but he didn't. But nobody did that. There was an early creed, and that's what Paul quotes. We're going to see what he writes when he's writing to this church in Corinth that's got a bit muddled about the resurrection. And this they think, was the first creed that was written about six years after Jesus' death, and Paul is quoting it in this letter. This is what he says. I delivered to you, church in Corinth, as of the first importance, what I also received. In other words, I was told this too. And this is probably when Paul went to talk with the apostles in Jerusalem just five or six years after Jesus' death and resurrection. This is why we know it was about five or six years old. It, we, it's believed that, that Paul had written this because this is what he'd been told then. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's number one in the creed. This is what the church believes. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter. Cephas is another name for Peter. And then to the other twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 people at a time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. James was Jesus' brother. James had always been a sceptic. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, and now he's referring to what happened to him, Paul, on the road to Damascus. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. Paul writes this down just 20 years after Jesus has died. He's saying here, do you know what? There's about 500 people who saw him. At any point, the church in Corinth could have said, well, let's find out, shall we? Let's send some people back to Jerusalem, just find out. Anyone here seen him? Did anyone? At any point, people could have said, no, don't believe that. But this was written 20 years after Jesus died. It couldn't have, it couldn't have become legend here because this is too early. It would have need to have been about 100 years later when there's nobody still alive who saw it for it to become legend. Early creed. Third one. Third E that Lee Strobel came up with when he tried to disprove the resurrection. Empty tomb. Even Jesus' enemies admitted that there was an empty tomb because what they said was, well, these disciples stole the body. So even Jesus' enemies admitted that the tomb was empty. And then Lee Strobel goes through all these possibilities. Well, okay, so perhaps the Romans stole the body then. Yeah, but why would the Romans do that? Because the Romans don't want people believing that, that Jesus was a Messiah. They've just crucified him. They want everybody to think he's dead and buried. No, no, the Romans wouldn't steal the body. They'd want him to stay there. So that when anybody says, oh, he's risen, they can pull the stone away and they say, yeah, is he? Okay. So that it doesn't, it doesn't work that the Romans stole the body. So perhaps the Jews stole the body then. But it's the same. The Jews were trying to crush Christianity under their feet. The Jews wouldn't have stolen the body. They'd have wanted to do the same. Roll the stone away, have a look. Bit whiffy, he's in there. Roll it back. 
Well, then maybe the disciples themselves stole the body, like, like the Jews were saying. These disciples stole the body, but why would they do that? Why would they do it? When did they have the opportunity? Because the biblical accounts tell us that the Romans put centuries in front of the tomb. But the other thing is, I just said to you that 10 out of those 12 apostles were martyred for their faith. Would you be, allow yourself to be martyred for a lie? If you'd been involved in the, right, let's steal the body and then everybody will think you raised from the dead. Let's put it somewhere, I don't know where, in the cupboard, shove it in the cupboard, okay, shut the door. Right. And then you allow yourself to be persecuted for that? You allow yourself to be, well, Peter was supposedly executed on a cross himself, but upside down. You allow yourself to go through that for a lie because you stole the body? Lee Strobel looked at it, the empty tomb itself. Nobody could explain it. Once again, there's no doubt in terms of what historians say that the tomb was empty. Everybody sort of really admits that. The question is how? And that one's not been answered. Lee Strobel couldn't answer it either. He couldn't disprove the resurrection in that ground. And then the last one was the eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses. If you remember those quotes that we had right at the start, each of the apostles talks about, I was there, I'm testifying to what I touched and I heard. I want you to believe because I saw it. And not just one, but a whole load of eyewitnesses, indeed 500 eyewitnesses that Paul talks about. Any one of them you could have found and said, is it true? No, nice idea, but sorry. Having gone through all this evidence... Lee Strobel sits on the floor and he comes to a point where he says, I can't disprove this. I can't disprove it. And so this hard-nosed legal editor of the Chicago Tribune falls on his knees. And he does the thing that the New Testament talks about. To those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. He believed, and then finally, with all the evidence, he receives. He receives. It's a wonderful book. It's worth reading. <coughs> Why have I told you all that as I draw to a close? Because as I've already said, quite a lot of the people sitting in this room don't need me to argue the case of the resurrection because you believe it. Why have I told you all this? Because it's good for Christians to know that our faith is a reasonable one. It isn't just something that was passed down to, your, to you from your parents and that you've believed without questioning. It means that when you walk into a world which is full of people who believe all type of stuff, what marks out what you believe as being any different? Because actually it's reasonable to believe it. And we'll bring up a final picture when if you just flick through that one. Let's go to the last one. I don't know if you saw that. As the flames of Notre Dame were finally doused in the early hours of last Tuesday morning, this poignant image of the inside of the cathedral was broadcast around the world. Through all the haze of human ideas and thoughts and doubts, 
the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ stand above them all. It may be foolishness to much of the world, but for us who believe, it is the wisdom and the power of God. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you on this day that it is true that you died, that you're risen, and that you will come again. And we thank you that it is a reasonable thing for us to believe. But we thank you also that it isn't just a case of believing facts, although the facts are very helpful. We also know, Lord Jesus, that you said that no one comes to the Father except through you. And no one comes to you unless the Father draws him. And so as part of everything we believe, we also believe that you have to draw us. You have to draw people to yourselves. And we pray, Father, that you will help us if we are exploring this ourselves. We pray that you will draw. And we pray for ourselves as Christians as we walk into a world that doesn't believe in the resurrection to a large extent that actually we don't have to despair, we don't have to try and prove you. We do know it's reasonable to believe what we believe, but we can also pray that you will draw those who don't know you to yourself, Lord Jesus, and that then through you, they will find the Father. So be with us in this coming week, we pray, and as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great Easter weekend. And we'll see you next week. You have just listened to a Beacon Church recording. If you would like more information about us, our vision, the team, or upcoming events, please visit our website, which is beacon-church.org. You can email us at office at beacon-church.com or find us socially on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You are welcome to share this recording as you wish, but please do not make any edits without express consent. Thank you.